This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A Miscellany of Men by G. K. Chesterton Section 3 The Voter and the Two Voices The real evil of our party system is commonly stated wrong. It was stated wrong by Lord Rosebery when he said that it prevented the best men from devoting themselves to politics and that it encouraged a fanatical conflict. I doubt whether the best men ever would devote themselves to politics. The best men devote themselves to pigs and babies and things like that. And as for the fanatical conflict in party politics, I wish there was more of it. The real danger of the two parties with their two policies is that they unduly limit the outlook of the ordinary citizen. They make him barren instead of creative, because he is never allowed to do anything except prefer one existing policy to another. We have not got real democracy when the decision depends upon the people. We shall have real democracy when the problem depends upon the people. The ordinary man will decide not only how he will vote, but what he is going to vote about. It is this which involves some weakness in many current aspirations toward the extension of suffrage. I mean that, apart from all questions of abstract justice, it is not the smallness or largeness of the suffrage that is at present the difficulty of democracy. It is not the quantity of voters, but the quality of the thing they are voting about. A certain alternative is put before them by the powerful houses and the highest political class. Two roads are open to them, but they must go down one or the other. They cannot have what they choose, but only what they choose. To follow the process in practice, we may put it thus. The suffragettes, if one may judge by their frequent ringing of his bell, want to do something to Mr. Asquith. I have no notion what it is. Let us say, for the sake of argument, that they want to paint him green. We will suppose that it is entirely for that simple purpose that they are always seeking to have private interviews with him. It seems as profitable as any other end I can imagine to such an interview. Now it is possible that the government of the day might go in for a positive policy of painting Mr. Asquith Green, might give that reform a prominent place in their program. Then the party in opposition would adopt another policy not a policy of leaving Mr. Asquith alone, which would be considered dangerously revolutionary, but some alternative course of action, as, for instance, painting him red. Then both sides would fling themselves on the people. They would both cry that the appeal was now to the Caesar of democracy. A dark and dramatic air of conflict and a real crisis would arise on both sides. Arrows of satire would fly, and swords of eloquence flame. The Greens would say that socialists and free lovers might well want to paint Mr. Asquith red. They wanted to paint the whole town red. Socialists would indignantly reply that socialism was the reverse of disorder, and that they only wanted to paint Mr. Asquith red so that he might resemble the red pillar boxes which typified state control. 
The Greens would passionately deny the charge so often brought against them by the Reds. They would deny that they wished Mr. Asquith Green in order that he might be invisible on the green benches of the Commons as certain terrified animals take the colour of their environment. There would be fights in the street, perhaps, and abundance of ribbons, flags, and badges of the two colours. One crowd would sing, Keep the red flag flying, and the other, The wearing of the green. But when the last effort had been made and the last moment come, when two crowds were waiting in the dark outside the public building to hear the declaration of the poll, then both sides alike would say that it was now for democracy to do exactly what it chose. England herself, lifting her head in awful loneliness and liberty, must speak and pronounce judgment. Yet this might not be exactly true. England herself, lifting her head in awful loneliness and liberty, might really wish Mr. Asquith to be pale blue. The democracy of England in the abstract, if it had been allowed to make up a policy for itself, might have desired him to be black with pink spots. It might even have liked him, as he is now. But a huge apparatus of wealth, power, and printed matter has made it practically impossible for them to bring home these other proposals, even if they would really prefer them. No candidates will stand in the spotted interest, for candidates commonly have to produce money, either from their own pockets or the patsies, and in such circles spots are not worn. No man in the social position of a cabinet minister, perhaps, will commit himself to the pale blue theory of Mr. Asquith. Therefore it cannot be a government measure. Therefore it cannot pass. Nearly all the great newspapers, both pompous and frivolous, will declare dogmatically day after day until every one half believes it that red and green are the only two colors in the paint box. The observer will say no one who knows the solid framework of politics or the emphatic first principles of an imperial people can suppose for a moment that there is any possible compromise to be made in such a matter. We must either fulfill our manifest racial destiny and crown the edifice of the ages with the august figure of a green premier, or we must abandon our heritage, break our promise to the empire, fling ourselves into final anarchy, and allow the flaming and demoniac image of a red premier to hover over our dissolution and our doom. The Daily Mail would say, There is no halfway house in this matter. It must be green or red. We wish to see every honest Englishman, one color or the other. And then some funny man in the popular press would star the sentence with a pun and say that the Daily Mail liked its readers to be green and its paper to be red. But no one would even dare to whisper that there is such a thing as yellow. For the purpose of pure logic it is clearer to argue with silly examples than with sensible ones, because silly examples are simple but I could give many grave and concrete cases of the kind of thing to which I refer. In the latter part of the Boer War, both parties perpetually insisted in every speech and pamphlet that annexation was inevitable and that it was only a question of whether liberals or Tories should do it. It was not inevitable in the least. It would have been perfectly easy to make peace with the Boers as Christian nations commonly make peace with their conquered enemies. Personally, I think it would have been better for us in the most selfish sense, 
better for our pocket and prestige if we had never effected the annexation at all. But that is a matter of opinion. What is plain is that it was not inevitable. It was not, as was said, the only possible course. There were plenty of other courses. There were plenty of other colors in the box. Again, in the discussion about socialism, it is repeatedly rubbed into the public mind that we must choose between socialism and some horrible thing that they call individualism. I don't know what it means, but it seems to mean that anybody who happens to pull out a plum is to adopt the moral philosophy of the young Horner and say what a good boy he is for helping himself. It is calmly assumed that the only two possible types of society are a collectivist type of society and the present society that exists at this moment and is rather like an animated muck heap. It is quite unnecessary to say that I should prefer socialism to the present state of things. I should prefer anarchism to the present state of things. But it is simply not the fact that collectivism is the only other scheme for a more equal order. A collectivist has a perfect right to think it the only sound scheme, but it is not the only plausible or possible scheme. We might have peasant proprietorship. We might have the compromise of Henry George. We might have a number of tiny communes. We might have cooperation. We might have anarchist communism. We might have a hundred things. I'm not saying any of these are right though I cannot imagine that any of them could be worse than the present social madhouse, with its top-heavy rich and tortured poor. But I say that it is an evidence of the stiff and narrow alternative offered to the civic mind, that the civic mind is not generally speaking conscious of these other possibilities. The civic mind is not free or alert enough to feel how much it has the world before it. There are at least ten solutions of the education question, and no one knows which Englishmen really want. For Englishmen are only allowed to vote about the two which are at the moment offered by the Premier and the leader of the opposition. There are ten solutions of the drink question, and no one knows which the democracy wants, for the democracy is only allowed to fight about one licensing bill at a time. So that the situation comes to this. The democracy has a right to answer questions, but it has no right to ask them. It is still the political aristocracy that asks the questions. And we shall not be unreasonably cynical if we suppose that the political aristocracy will always be rather careful what questions it asks. And if the dangerous comfort and self-flattery of modern England continues much longer, there will be less democratic value in an English election than in a Roman Saturnalia of slaves. For the powerful class will choose two courses of action, both of them safe for itself, and then give the democracy the gratification of taking one course or the other. The Lord will take two things so much alike that he would not mind choosing from them blindfolded, and then for a great jest he will allow the slaves to choose. THE MAD OFFICIAL Going mad is the slowest and dullest business in the world. I have very nearly done it more than once in my boyhood, and so have nearly all my friends, 
born under the general doom of mortals, but especially of moderns. I mean the doom that makes a man come almost to the end of thinking before he comes to the first chance of living. But the process of going mad is dull for the simple reason that a man does not know that it is going on. Routine and literalism and a certain dry-throated earnestness and mental thirst, these are the very atmosphere of morbidity. If once the man could become conscious of his madness, he would cease to be man. He studies certain texts in Daniel or cryptograms in Shakespeare through monstrously magnifying spectacles which are on his nose night and day. If once he could take off the spectacles, he would smash them. He deduces all his fantasies about the sixth seal or the Anglo-Saxon race from one unexamined and invisible first principle. If he could once see the first principle, he would see that it is not there. This slow and awful self-hypnotism of error is a process that can occur not only with individuals, but also with whole societies. It is hard to pick out and prove, that is why it is hard to cure. But this mental degeneration may be brought to one test, which I truly believe to be a real test. A nation is not going mad when it does extravagant things, so long as it does them in an extravagant spirit. Crusaders not cutting their beards till they found Jerusalem. Jacobins calling each other Harmodius and Epaminotus when their names were Iacchus and Jules. These are wild things, but they were done in wild spirits at a wild moment. But whenever we see things done wildly but taken tamely, then the state is growing insane. For instance, I have a gun license. For all I know, this would logically allow me to fire off fifty-nine enormous field guns day and night in my back garden. I should not be surprised at a man doing it, for it would be great fun. But I should be surprised at the neighbors putting up with it and regarding it as an ordinary thing, merely because it might happen to fulfill the letter of my license. Or again, I have a dog license, and I may have the right, for all I know, to turn ten thousand wild dogs loose in Buckinghamshire. I should not be surprised if the law were like that, because in modern England there is practically no law to be surprised at. I should not be surprised even at the man who did it, for a certain kind of man, if he lived long under the English landlord system, might do anything. But I should be surprised at the people who consented to stand it. I should, in other words, think the world a little mad if the incident were received in silence. Now things every bit as wild as this are being received in silence every day. All strokes slip on the smoothness of a polished wall. All blows fall soundless on the softness of a padded cell. For madness is a passive as well as an active state. It is a paralysis, a refusal of the nerves to respond to the normal stimuli, as well as an unnatural stimulation. There are commonwealths plainly to be distinguished here and there in history, which pass from prosperity to squalor, or from glory to insignificance, or from freedom to slavery, not only in silence, but with serenity. The face still smiles while the limbs literally and loathsomely are dropping from the body. 
These are the peoples that have lost the power of astonishment at their own actions. When they give birth to a fantastic fashion or a foolish law, they do not start or stare at the monster they have brought forth. They have grown used to their own unreason. Chaos is their cosmos, and the whirlwind is the breath of their nostrils. These nations are really in danger of going off their heads in mass, of becoming one vast vision of imbecility, with toppling cities and crazy countrysides all dotted with industrious lunatics. One of these countries is modern England. Now here is an actual instance, a small case of how our social conscience really works, tame in spirit, wild in result, blank in realization, a thing without the light of mind in it. I take this paragraph from a daily paper. At Epping yesterday, Thomas Woolburn, a Lamborn laborer, and his wife were summoned for neglecting their five children. Dr. Alpin said he was invited by the inspector of the NSPCC to visit defendant's cottage. Both the cottage and the children were dirty. The children looked exceedingly well in health, but the conditions would be serious in case of illness. Defendants were stated to be sober. The man was discharged, the woman who said she was hampered by the cottage having no water supply and that she was ill, was sentenced to six weeks' imprisonment. The sentence caused surprise, and the woman was removed, crying, Lord, save me. I know no name for this, but Chinese. It calls up the mental picture of some archaic and changeless eastern court in which men with dried faces and stiff ceremonial costumes perform some atrocious cruelty to the accompaniment of formal proverbs and sentences of which the very meaning has been forgotten. In both cases, the only thing in the whole farrago that can be called real is the wrong. If we apply the lightest touch of reason to the whole Epping prosecution, it dissolves into nothing. I here challenge any person in his five wits to tell me what that woman was sent to prison for. Either it was for being poor, or it was for being ill. Nobody could suggest, nobody will suggest, nobody, as a matter of fact, did suggest that she had committed any other crime. The doctor was called in by a society for the prevention of cruelty to children. Was this woman guilty of cruelty to children? Not in the least. Did the doctor say she was guilty of cruelty to children? Not in the least. Was there any evidence, even remotely bearing, on the sin of cruelty? not a rap. The worst that the doctor could work himself up to saying was that though the children were exceedingly well, the conditions would be serious in case of illness. If the doctor will tell me any conditions that would be comic in case of illness, I shall attach more weight to his argument. Now this is the worst effect of modern worry. The mad doctor has gone mad he is literally and practically mad, and still he is quite literally and practically a doctor. The only question is the old one, quius docit ipsum doctorum. Now cruelty to children is an utterly unnatural thing, instinctively accursed of earth and heaven. But neglect of children is a natural thing, like neglect of any other duty. It is a mere difference of degree that divides extending arms and legs in calisthenics and extending them on the rack. 
It is a mere difference of degree that separates any operation from any torture. The thumbscrew can easily be called manicure. Being pulled about by wild horses can easily be called massage. The modern problem is not so much what people will endure as what they will not endure. But I fear I interrupt. The boiling oil is boiling, and the tenth Mandarin is already reciting the seventeen serious principles and the fifty-three virtues of the sacred emperor. The Enchanted Man When I arrived to see the performance of the Buckinghamshire players who acted Miss Gertrude Robin's potluck at Naphill a short time ago, it is the distressing, if scarcely surprising, truth that I entered very late. This would have mattered little, I hope, to anyone but that latecomers had to be forced into front seats, for a real popular English audience always insists on crowding in the back part of the hall, and, as I have found in many an election, will endure the most unendurable taunts rather than come forward. The English are a modest people, that is why they are entirely ruled and run by the few of them that happen to be immodest. In theatrical affairs the fact is strangely notable, and in most playhouses we find the bored people in front and the eager people behind. As far as the performance went, I was quite the reverse of a bored person. But I may have been a boring person, especially as I was thus required to sit in the seats of the scornful. It will be a happy day in the dramatic world when all ladies have to take their hats off and all critics have to take off their heads. The people behind will have a chance then, and as it happens in this case I had not so much taken off my head as lost it. I had lost it on the road on that strange journey that was the cause of my coming in late. I have a troubled recollection of having seen a very good play and made a very bad speech. I have a cloudy recollection of talking to all sorts of nice people afterwards, but talking to them jerkily and with half a head, as a man talks when he has one eye on a clock. And the truth is that I had one eye on an ancient and timeless clock, hung uselessly in heaven, whose very name has passed into a figure for such bemused folly. In the true sense of an ancient phrase, I was moonstruck. A lunar landscape a scene of winter moonlight had inexplicably got in between me and all other scenes. If anyone had asked me, I could not have said what it was. I cannot say now. Nothing had occurred to me except the breakdown of a hired motor on a ridge of a hill. It was not an adventure. It was a vision. I had started in a wintry twilight from my own door and hired a small car that found its way across the hills toward Naphill. But as night blackened and frost brightened and hardened it, I found the way increasingly difficult, especially as the way was an incessant ascent. Whenever we topped a road like a staircase, it was only to turn into yet a steeper road like a ladder. At last, when I began to fancy that I was spirally climbing the Tower of Babel in a dream, I was brought to fact by alarming noises, stoppage, and the driver saying that it couldn't be done. I got out of the car and suddenly forgot that I had ever been in it. From the edge of that abrupt steep I saw something indescribable 
which I am now going to describe. When Mr. Joseph Chamberlain delivered his great patriotic speech on the inferiority of England to the Dutch parts of South Africa, he made use of the expression, the illimitable veldt. The word veldt is Dutch, and the word illimitable is double Dutch. But the meditative statesman probably meant that the new plains gave him a sense of largeness and dreariness which he had never found in England. Well, if he never found it in England, it was because he never looked for it in England. In England, there is an illimitable number of illimitable veldts. I saw six or seven separate eternities encresting as many different hills. One cannot find anything more infinite than a finite horizon, free and lonely and innocent. The Dutch veldt may be a little more desolate than Birmingham, but I am sure it is not so desolate as that English hill was, almost within a cannon shot of High Wycombe. I looked across a vast and voiceless valley, straight at the moon, as if at a round mirror. It may have been the blue moon of the proverb, for on that freezing night the very moon seemed blue with cold. A deathly frost fastened every branch and blade to its place. The sinking and softening forests, powdered with the grey frost, fell away underneath me into an abyss which seemed unfathomable. One fancied the world was soundless only because it was bottomless. It seemed as if all songs and cries had been swallowed in some unresisting stillness under the roots of the hills. I could fancy that if I shouted there would be no echo, that if I hurled huge stones there would be no noise of reply. A dumb devil had bewitched the landscape, but that does not express the best or worst of it. All those hoary and frosted forests express something so inhuman that it has no human name. A horror of unconsciousness lay on them, that is the nearest phrase I know. It was as if one were looking at the back of the world, and the world did not know it. I had taken the universe in the rear. I was behind the scenes. I was eavesdropping upon an unconscious creation. I shall not express what the place expressed. I am not even sure that it is a thing that ought to be expressed. There was something heathen about its union of beauty and death. Sorrow seemed to glitter, as it does in some of the great pagan poems. I understood one of the thousand poetical phrases of the populace, a God-forsaken place. Yet something was present there, and I could not yet find the key to my fixed impression. Then suddenly I remembered the right word. It was an enchanted place. It had been put to sleep. In a flash... I remembered all the fairy tales about princes turned to marble and princesses changed to snow. We were in a land where none could strive or cry out, a white nightmare. The moon looked at me across the valley like the enormous eye of a hypnotist, the one white eye of the world. There was never a better play than Potluck for it tells the tale with point and a tale that might happen any day among English peasants. There were never better actors than the local Buckinghamshire players, for they were acting their own life with just that rise into exaggeration, which is the transition from life to art. But all the time I was mesmerized by the moon. I saw all these men and women as enchanted things, 
The poacher shot pheasants, the policeman tracked pheasants, the wife hid pheasants. They were all, especially the policeman, as true as death. But there was something more true to death than true to life about it all. The figures were frozen with a magic frost of sleep or fear or custom, such as does not cramp the movements of the poor men of other lands. I looked at the poacher and the policeman and the gun, then at the gun and the policeman and the poacher, and I could find no name for the fancy that haunted and escaped me. The poacher believed in the game laws as much as the policeman. The poacher's wife not only believed in the game laws, but protected them as well as him. She got a promise from her husband that he would never shoot another pheasant. Whether he kept it, I doubt. I fancy he sometimes shot a pheasant, even after that. But I am sure he never shot a policeman. For we live in an enchanted land. End of section 3